we continue our time together in John's Gospel, I want to invite you to join me in chapter 5. This morning we will be reading verses 16 through 24. As we prepare to turn to this passage, let me, let me ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would, you would open my heart, that you would open all of our, heart, our, our hearts to receive this truth. That you are a relational God, a powerful God, loving God, I pray that we would see a call to oneness with you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the word of the Lord. Beginning with D-Day, uh, June 6th, 1944, and extending into uh, the middle part of 1945, the, the American and, and Allied soldiers, they, they made their way through Europe. And as they, and as they, as they marched through Europe, they, they did two things. Uh, they defeated enemy armies. <laughs> and they released the captives, granting them freedom. Those soldiers, as they marched their way across Europe, they, they brought with them a, a mighty authority. And there were symbols of their authority that they, they carried with them along the way. Make no mistake about it, for their enemies, their weapons were a symbol of the authority that they carried with them. But there was a different symbol of authority for those who were their friends. The friends whom they were freeing 
The children they encountered along the way saw the symbol of their authority, not in the weapons, but in the chocolate bars that they offered to, to welcome them in. To both friend and foe, those soldiers presented an authority, but the way that authority was received had everything to do with the relationship one had to the authority. When you think about the authority of Jesus, what do you think? What goes through your mind and your heart when you consider the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the world? How do you respond to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in your own homes? Does the mention of His authority make the hairs on the back of your neck bristle? Do you want to bow up at the thought of of anyone, particularly Jesus, being over you? Or do you hear in his authority a sense of comfort, a sense of protection? Again, it goes back to the relationship we have with the authoritative one. The religious leaders experienced an adversarial relationship to the authoritative one. We, we heard it uh, last week. We see it in this text, and we will continue to see it throughout John. We'll see it in the rest of this gospel account. Last week, we heard that the Jews, they didn't like that Jesus was, was supposedly working on the Sabbath. You even heard it. This was not Jesus' words, but in verse 18, as they... Uh, claimed that he was breaking the Sabbath. It was the offense that they had. They, they didn't like that he was working, but then Jesus, he sort of upped the ante. He, he moved all the, all the chips to the center of the table, and, and he said, not only am I working, but God, he is my Father. He did so. He made a very important claim he was claiming deity. There were, there were things that, that the religious leaders misunderstood about what Jesus was saying, but this they very clearly grasped, that he was declaring himself to be Lord over the Sabbath. Verse 17 says that Jesus answered them. That answer, it was an answer in response to a charge. The offense that they laid before him was this, counting himself equal with God. Jesus offered his defense in response. What, what was so offensive about his claim? Well, was it because the religious leaders considered Jesus' words to be false? In other words, were they, were they fighting for truth? Were they, were they wary of, of theological error? Were they wary of, of sin in his life, the sin of blasphemy, calling himself to be God? Was, was that what made Jesus' words and actions so offensive to them? Well, on some level, yes. But could there be more? Could it be 
that the religious leaders were so offended because they rightly understood that in Jesus' words and in his actions, he was declaring himself to be an authority over them. Think both. But it was likely the latter that stirred the hatred that would cause them to persecute him and eventually kill him. The backstory behind this helps add color to their struggle and further reveals their heart and maybe even our hearts. You see, at the time there was uh, this debate going on, a debate that Jesus uh, likely intentionally entered into when he said that his father was working. The, 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 the debate went something like this. God must continue to work by virtue of his work of providence. The, the world just doesn't stop on the Sabbath. And, and if God is, is working a work of providence, he then is working on the Sabbath. And so is God breaking the Sabbath commandment? In other words, is God committing a sin. That was the debate that was going on among the religious leaders. And so somewhere in the, in the first century, a, a collection of, of four uh, eminent rabbi scholars gathered together to, to work through this. And praise the Lord, they decided that God was not indeed breaking his own commandment. They exonerated God. But understand what's happening in this debate. When the rabbis decided that though he was working, the, they reasoned that the whole world was his domain. And because the whole world was dom his domain, that he was allowed to do his work of providence on the Sabbath. In their reasoning, they were seeking to justify God. They were seeking to, to give him a pass for his work. And they were so subtly. They were placing themselves in an authority over God. They were placing themselves above him as the judge on whether or not God himself was a sinner. We hear that and we think in terms of how could they do that? How, how could they think that they could possibly have a right to declare whether or not God was breaking the commandment? But don't we do the same thing when we question the word of God? Don't we do the same thing when we question both God's wisdom and His will? It reveals our heart. Maybe it reveals our heart as we look into their heart. If in subtle ways they would question God like this, if in subtle ways they would place themselves over Him, to make themselves his judge. There is no way that they would tolerate Jesus placing himself over them. Jesus answered their charge. The charge was that he was calling himself equal to God. But what we need to understand that in, in that situation, and Quite frankly, in any situation, the discussion around equality is ultimately a discussion of relative position. 
their relative position to Jesus, our relative position to anyone else. That's what we're talking about when we discuss equality. But Jesus, without using the words, reframes the whole discussion, turning it on its head, and says this is not a matter of equality. It's a discussion of oneness. The Jews, they may have understood his claim of deity but not his nature, not the relationship he experienced with the Father. They didn't understand his equality with God. Jesus is not, by virtue of his works or his word, asserting himself as, as a competing God. Think in your mind the, the, the family business where the where the son grows up and he, he decides he needs to feel his oats. He, he starts to challenge the father for, for the real and rightful authority in the family business. He, he starts to compete. No, Jesus is not competing for who is actually in charge of the family business. He is not presenting himself as a competing God. The Jews, in, in assuming that, likely were projecting their own views back on God. But when we understand the discussion in this way, it helps us understand that the verses that follow what they actually are are, are a beautiful, thoughtful defense of the Trinity. Jesus is saying, I'm not a competing God. I'm God the Son. Understand what is going here, uh, on here, as one, uh, as one theologian described it, as a, as a distinctly Christian monotheism. I'm going to put verses 19 through 23 back before you. Listen to them again. Listen to them and, and you tell me about the heart that is behind Jesus' claim of deity. These are Jesus' words. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. But the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. But the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. What did you hear in those words? Did you hear a competing claim from Jesus trying to take His rightful place at the top of the family business? No, you didn't hear that. You heard Jesus speaking not of equality, but of oneness. Now this, this discussion, this description of oneness in no way minimizes his power. But it presents authority in terms of mutual love, honor, submission. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, I see what the Father is doing because he graciously reveals what he is doing to me and then I go do it. Oftentimes, little boys, they, 
They want to grow up and be like daddy. They want to, they want to dress like daddy. They want to talk like daddy. They want to do the things that daddy does. I, I have these, these uh, images imprinted in my mind of, of when the boys were, were, oh, that big. And, and they would put on my boots. And those boots would, would come all, they were like hip boots. But they were wearing them because they just wanted to be, it's a scary thought, but they wanted to be like daddy. Why? Why do sons want to do that? Because there's an intimacy and a love that exists where true sonship exists. That's what's going on here. The father is, is revealing his work to his son. The father is revealing his will to the son. And Jesus, the son is obeying joyfully by replicating the works that he sees the Father doing. Jesus talks about all of this, and, and then he points to a progression in the works, to, to a movement that these works are going to grow in greatness. We've talked about how in John, John is, is presenting to us a series of signs, of, of miracles. And he does that, as we've heard, so that we might See and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in His name. There is, in this presentation of works, a progression. You heard it in the first sign as Jesus turned the water to wine. But now He grows in the signs to, to bring about physical healing. And ultimately, the seventh sign presented in John's Gospel is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. All of those signs then point to Jesus' own resurrection. And then, as we hear hinted in this text today, the final day, the resurrection day, when Jesus will speak and all who are in their graves will rise and come before the judgment of God. This progression of work builds up to giving life, but then to declaring judgment. Stuart took the ACT yesterday. You know, those, those standardized tests, they have some version of a question that are, um, of all these words, which word doesn't fit with the rest? Which word didn't fit with the rest? Is all that you heard. You, you're hearing about that. I'm like, why, why judgment? Why do we have to go there? What is, what is this discussion of judgment in this list of beautiful wonders? And what does it have to do with Jesus? Didn't we hear just a couple of chapters ago in John 3.17 that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world? We did hear that. But remember, when we explored that verse, we understood it to mean that Jesus didn't have to condemn the world. We condemn ourselves by virtue of our own sin. The judgment that Jesus comes to bring is a declaration of what is already true. And what on the day of judgment will be abundantly clear for all to see. Jesus will pronounce judgment on that day, declaring the condemnation for sinners who have rejected him and have trusted in their own merits. We'll talk more about judgment next week as we see the relationship that exists between us and the authoritative, authoritative one in the not yet. But today we're focused on the now. So here, in the now, I want you to see the beautiful purpose between God, uh, purpose behind the Father delegating this role of judgment to the Son. 
Listen again to the first part of verse 23. God delegates this work of judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son. Do you hear it? Honor means worship. And on the day of judgment, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. On that day, all, friend and foe alike, all will worship the Son. And the Father desires that all will worship the Son. There's two aspects of that desire. First, the Father delights in the Son. He delights in the Son and He wants to usher Him up at the very front row on that day of judgment so that all will see the Son and worship Him. God, the Father delegates His role of judgment to God the Son because He delights in Him and wants us to worship Him. See in this delegation the heart of the Father loves his son. That's, that's part of what's going on in this delegation. But there's a second part. More than mere delight, there's a statement of truth. The second part of that verse 23. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. The word here is telling us that we cannot rightly honor the father. If we do not also rightly honor the son. That's the truth of union. That's the truth of oneness. That to deny the Son is to deny the work of the Father. And to deny the Father is to deny the mission of the Son. You can't honor the Son if you don't honor the Father, and you can't honor the Father if you don't honor the Son. Jesus is pointing to this beautiful, loving oneness. The Son's work cannot be separated from the eternal will of God. Jesus' defense to the charge placed before him, it is a beautiful, sweet description of the oneness that has existed before the beginning of time and will exist for all eternity within the triune God. This is not a rebellious son challenging the father's strength. This is a beloved son reveling in the oneness that he enjoys with the father and describing the outworking of that oneness so that we will all marvel. Marvel. It's another way to capture the, the worship that is to exist, but there's more going on in this marveling than worship. This is a discussion of belief. From what you've heard as we've, as we've gone through this text, do you have any doubt in your mind of what Jesus is saying when he, when he says, we want you to marvel? Jesus is not standing up trying to show out and show off. He's calling us in to belief. He's calling us to believe in the Father and to receive this message. This message of union and our call to embrace it. The, the, the weight of so much of this text lands on verse 24. Jesus opens up, truly, truly, I say to you, hear, hear Jesus' words, listen up, y'all. Listen up. Everything that I've been saying, this, this revealing and doing, 
is living out the authority through oneness, it builds to this, that you, that I, that we, the people of God, would hear and believe. That we would hear the word of God and receive it. But even in this call to belief, the, the theme of oneness continues. Do you hear what Jesus says in verse 24? Hear my word and believe him who sent me. Hear what I say and believe the Father. This is a call to a triune faith. God the Father, before the beginning of time, authored this plan of redemption. He authored our salvation. And in the fullness of time, God the Son accomplished it. And then in power, God the Spirit applies all of the work of Jesus Christ to us while we were yet still sinners. This is an invitation to a beautiful, triune faith. And even that belief that he calls us to is evidence of the greater work that he is describing. Because it's all of God. It's all the Holy Spirit's work in us. That we would receive this gift. Jesus is turning the adversarial nature of the accusation the Pharisees are placing on him. He's turning it on its head. And inviting us, you and I, to experience the beauty of submission to oneness. And contrary to the way most of us live our lives, this gift that he's inviting us to receive is a gift that is meant to be experienced now. How do you, how do you think about eternal life? When you think about eternal life. Is that a gift for us only for the future? Is that a gift only for us to experience when we die? This week, Anna and I were talking about Christmas shopping. Every year we talk about doing Christmas shopping early, but this year we're a little worried about stuff getting here in the mail. We're worried about lines at the store. So maybe we'll actually do what we normally talk about. Maybe we'll start early this year. But if we start early this year, here's the way it's going to work out. We're going to go and we're going to buy some Christmas gifts. We're going to wrap them up nice and neat. Then we're going to put them in the closet. Hopefully hide them away even so that they don't get opened yet. They'll wait in their place, secure, unopened, until they can be enjoyed on Christmas Day. Is that the way that you think about eternal life? Purchased by Jesus, secure, but wrapped and put away for a later day. That's the way you think about eternal life. Listen again to verse 24 and what Jesus is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not will have, has eternal life. Jesus is drawing us in. And he's saying, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait for a later day. This gift that I have for you is a gift meant for you today. So what would it look like 
for you to embrace the gift of union in Christ, relational oneness. Now, the rebellious spirit thinks about authority in the context of equality. The rebellious spirit thinks about authority in terms of relative position, and, and the rebellious spirit resists it. The spirit of sonship thinks in terms of oneness. The spirit of sonship thinks in terms of connection, of union. Maybe part of what it means to receive this gift today is to let go of our rebelliousness. To let go of our rebellious spirit and to embrace authoritative oneness. But again, what might it look like today to embrace that gift? To embrace the gift now? What would it look like for you to live in light of the resurrection life today? Don't you think it would be freeing? Do you think it would free us from the, the adversarial suspicion of authority? You think it might give us a freedom from, from worry, the worry over whether or not I will ever truly know what it means to be loved? You think it would give us freedom to, to enjoy Jesus today by being honest with Him, brutally so, and real with one another because we don't have to fear. Because our earthly relationships are no longer ultimate. They are just gifts. Oftentimes we feel like we have to perform to maintain the relationship. But living in light of the, re the resurrection gift of life now means that we can love boldly. It means that we can love wildly. We can have a freedom to serve and love and explore our gifting without the fear of failing. That's what it means to join in His work of redemption. So maybe we think about this text and can summarize it this way. You and I, we, not only do we need to, we get to think about eternal life more now. We get to think about heaven now. And we can allow that sure and certain hope to shape the way we live today. What we've been talking about is a precious promise. A precious promise from the Lord and then acting on that precious promise. But before you act today on a, on a promise that was made to you about something in the future, what do you want to know? You want to know the trustworthiness of the promise maker. It, it really gets down to the old-fashioned game of trust fall. You know, you have somebody behind you, and they say, just fall back into my arms. Trust me. I'll catch you. But before we do that, what, what do we do? we're looking around. Is this person able? Are they strong enough to keep me from falling? But we want to know more than just their ability. We want to know their heart, because they may be able, but... Are they actually going to do it? Do they want what's good for me? Friends, Jesus is the promise maker. He's capable and trustworthy. Because he is the promise keeper. 
who kept the promise of God on the cross. He honored the promise there by going to his death so that through his death, you and I might have life. And in his resurrection, he authenticated it all for us. He is able because he defeated death. But his promise is so much more than a promise of a safety net. This is a promise of his heart for you. This is a precious promise that he invites you, he invites us to experience the blessing of oneness with Him. There's a oneness, as we have heard in this text, and you need to hear for your own life, that is marked by love, by honor, by humility, by submission. Let's hear this call. Let's believe in the one who sent Jesus. And let's receive all the blessings of the eternal resurrection life. Friends, let's fall back into His strong and loving arms. Father, your word is strong and powerful. Your word is authoritative. We live under your word, and your word is inviting. Your word speaks to your love, your grace. I pray today that we would know this call to live in light of our union in Christ union in you, that we would enjoy it today. In Christ's name, amen.